We're joined this week by Carter Malloy, the CEO and founder of Acre Trader. Thank you, sir. Glad to have you with us. Thanks. Um, I know you're involved in a couple of things. Before we get we deep dive into some of these projects you got going on, let's talk a little bit about your background. So you grew up on a farm in Arkansas. How is that? How has that stuck with you and made you who you are today? Growing up in a, a farming family, I was, I was split between the, the the big city of Little Rock and, and our farm near near Stuckyard, Arkansas. Uh, was I think the thing that stuck with me, I guess the, the easiest thing to say is like entrepreneurialism, right? The the idea of you got to work really hard, lucky, and uh, I think I think that that resonates pretty well with most farmers. This is this is very hard work, and occasionally uh, if the season's right and things things go well, you can get lucky also. Uh, what would you would you have on the farm? What was it like? So, we grow uh, beans and corn a good amount. With those, uh, cotton a lot more when I was younger. Uh, though these days, that tends to be uh, quite a bit of rice. Okay. All right. So you fast forward. You work in you, kind of the financial industry for a while, right? That's correct. All right. So what what, what skills did you learn there? So I, I spent a dozen years. In, in professional equity investing, so uh, in, investing in, in larger public companies, and I think what what that helped me, I guess the exciting part of that job rather than what helped me, what, what excited me most was the the analysis. I was really digging in and learning uh, qualitative and quantitative analysis uh, as a you know twelve hours a day over and over. Uh, you, you learn Excel pretty well, I guess. It's probably <laughs> the, only, the only hard skill I took out of that, uh, but, but certainly having a, a critical eye and, and understanding investments and compounding and all the fun fun uh, laws and nature of investing behind that. Yeah, that sounds pretty exciting, the day-to-day, -day, huh? <laughs> a lot of numbers. I, I loved it. You know, it, it's, it's uh, research and reading and calling people and discovering more information. So I, I really enjoyed the job. All right. So along the way, at some point, something's going through your head like, I think I'm going to go out on my own and I got some ideas. How does that happen? I always wanted to build a business. My, my mom was an entrepreneur. My, my dad was as well. So th that was always in the back of my head and, and I had lots of really bad business ideas along the way <laughs> I wanted to start and, and uh, fortunately did not pursue. Uh, I also, uh, throughout most of my career, had been in investing in, in farmland and just, just really fell in love with this. I think it's just, it, you know, part of me, it's in my roots to, to enjoy being out on a farm. And along the way, I discovered I was grinding out 12-hour, you know, 15-hour days in public markets with near uh, perfect information on a relative basis between investors. And here's this multi-trillion dollar asset class that I'm I'm in love with anyway, that I find fascinating personally, uh, with effectively no information around it and, and no real, uh, at that time especially, very little professional capital formation. And so what, what you end up with is a very inefficient market. So at, at the core, that's where our business came from, was helping to make a more efficient market, help, it, help to make it more productive for all the participants involved. And we've been been uh, really excited about the progress we've been able to make as a business, though we are very, very early in that journey. Okay, so is this set up as separate businesses? Is it one main business with some, as the umbrella, how do you have this structured? So Acre Trader is our primary company and put simply that connects farmers with, with growth capital. Uh, so farmers wanna grow their business, we partner with them to buy land and investors want to have access to farmland in their portfolio. So we allow investors to 
come in and invest in farmland, $10,000, $20,000 at a time, rather than millions of dollars at a time. So that's our core business. That's AcreTrader. Within AcreTrader, uh, we have a, a sister company called Acres. It lives at acres.com. And that's an information information business. We built it initially because we needed it as investors, though now it is its own separate business unit and allows folks to come on and find additional information about their land or land they want to potentially acquire or what's going on in the neighborhood. So how challenging is this? As you well know, there's just not a lot of farmland that changes hands every year, bar barring a crisis of some sort. So how challenging is it? And for the most part, a lot of folks look at expansion, you know, on the simplest level, you want it pretty close to what you already have in a lot of cases, right? If this is your day to day and you're the one actually doing the farming. So how challenging is it? And then how do you work your services, your data into this? I think it's a really good point that there's, there's an intense amount of illiquidity within farmland at a hyper local level. When you start to zoom out on a national level, there's 50, if not 100 billion, but with a B of the stuff that trades hands every year every single year. And that number is growing. And a huge number, but that's still just a fraction of the total. That's right. That's right. It's only a couple of points of, of what is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Uh, so on a relative basis, if you look at the, the land market relative to just about any other, uh, uh, call it primary market within the U.S. economy, uh, we are very, very illiquid. Nonetheless, when that liquidity does come up uh, is actually the bigger problem. Right, is that uh, how that land is marketed, how that land is priced, how it is bought and sold? Uh, tend, generally speaking, tends to be through fairly antiquated processes and/or through no process at all. Okay, so you've talked about how data rich you have made this. So, for the most part, what are what are you what are what are potential owners, potential owners who want to expand or just want to invest wherever you see? you can recommend what are the most important characteristics as you look at this the factors yeah i think you know bottom up and top down are the two ways that you can value most uh, securities or most assets in general and i'll give you the example of my dad owns some farmland and a adjoining a, a parcel comes up for sale and he says you know what i, I own this little uh, little parcel six miles down the road i want to sell it and buy this neighboring one well, what's that, what's that parcel six miles away worth? And he knows really well what that's worth, plus or minus about 30%. And, and that same rule applies to the neighboring parcel as well. And, and so really that, that problem statement is what we have been oriented around, is how can we make this a more fair market uh, for, you know, my, my dad's not a, a professional land investor. He's not out buying and selling land all the time on a national basis, but he needs to know and needs a, a fair shake, as, as do uh, the neighbors and expand that situation across uh, quite literally millions of families in the U.S. So uh, that, that's a big part of what we're what we're attempting to do is help reconcile that understanding of what, de first of all, what defines quality in the first place? Uh, how, how do you know? Everybody says, I own this really great land or, uh, yeah, I know that, that soil over there, it's okay. In, in the Midwest, forgive me, uh, for those of you in the Midwest and Iowa and, and in Illinois, you have a little better understanding with, with PI and CSR2 and various soil scores, understanding if it's tiled or not. Uh, but, but, but there again, like farming practices can still have a very material impact on the productivity. So I'm sorry, sorry to be long-winded here. Uh, the, the general idea is helping people solve that, that problem. How is, is the next question. One is having the information be available in the first place, right? So who owns this parcel? Who owns the neighboring parcels? 
what are the comparable sales in the neighborhood? Or is there land for sale in that area? And then all the various uh, qualitative factors that may describe a, a piece of ground. So what's what's the, uh, the topography of that like? How's water going to flow in and off of that property? Are there wetlands determinations, the soil scores, of course, and, and, a, and a myriad of other factors that should that often do influence price. As you look at those factors, can you talk a little bit about we're having more conversations these days about weather concerns, right? Especially availability of water, depending on where in the country you are. Uh, here in the Midwest, uh, uh, in Iowa, we had a bunch of snow the last couple of weeks. As this starts to melt off, uh, it's going to be a mess. But for those who have been desperately waiting for for additional precipitation for roughly three years of this drought, now this could be pretty welcome to at least add uh, maybe help make up for some of that shortfall in other in other parts of the country, maybe they're dealing with drought, but they're doing more longer term concerns about are they going to have the water supply that they need. Do, do you work that in as you're doing a longer term outlooks for these folks? Often so. So we, we what we do not do is um, near term weather and near term yield forecasting, things like that. We, we take a, a much broader view over what are the various factors going to influence <clears throat> the, the value of this piece of farmland or, or timberland for that matter. Water is certainly important. Go to California and it's like the only <laughs> thing that matters. Yeah. Right? So being able to determine your your uh, uh, water districts and things like the contact information at your local GSA. Um, uh, likewise, uh, the the various districts in, in Nebraska, as an example, fairly close to you, uh, understanding um, all of your your water availability uh, within each of those places. Uh, wells in Georgia and Arkansas, that matters. Tile really matters in the Midwest. So the, the tiling of a, of a piece of property is gonna have a much broader impact than what those near-term uh, weather patterns have been. So last couple of years, we have been dealing with these inflated interest rates. Now, you know, the, the old schoolers will remember the 80s. And of course, they have the perspective about, you know, hey, if you want to talk about interest rates, let me tell you <laughs> what it used to be like. But for for the folks kind of more recent to this, who maybe weren't of age in the 80s, they have been inflated the last couple of years. And I'm curious, as you as you look ahead to 2024, how is that impacting potential buyers and sellers as they look at where it is and in the hope that maybe the Fed will knock these down a couple of times at some point in 2024, maybe not significantly, but at least kind of getting it going. So how does that impact where you see things going? So first, it's important to contextualize that within farmland here in the U.S., something like there's like 13 or 14 percent debt to assets. So the, the amount of debt relative to the value of that asset uh, that is on a relative basis to other asset classes, incredibly under levered. Right. Think about the typical home buyer. When you go in to buy a home, you usually get an 80 percent loan to value, uh, eight zero. We're talking about one four percent. So so the the relative reprieve, the, the, the welcome good news we have in, in with interest rates and in land is that most of that land is under longer term mortgages. And most of that is at a very low level of, of leverage. Even when you have a levered piece of property, often that leverage is like 50%. So half the value of the land is, is mortgaged at, at the local bank. Uh, so it, 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 quite, a, quite a different setup relative to, to most other corners of the US economy. Nonetheless, 
in the impact to the buyers, it has certainly removed buyers from from auction uh, or buyers from from the market in general that were intending to use leverage. Again, surprising a lot of those folks that you know you go to go to an auction house or uh, an auction over uh, uh, one Saturday there in Iowa, and surprising number of people are still coming in with a checkbook and cash ready to buy. So uh, we, we've seen quite a bit of broad support within the market uh, at uh, when when auction when, when pro uh, properties are coming to market. And part of that is the same uh, same dynamic that's happening in housing. In housing, rates absolutely should have a more material impact, right? That they, they take the, the cost of the mortgage up pretty meaningfully, given the amount of leverage that's in you buying your next house. And so what's what that's resulted in is just less people moving, less supply, and so uh, broad support for housing prices or broad improvement in housing prices in the U.S. And similarly, in farmland, we just don't see much coming up for sale every year. So you don't really see much changing. Basically, current trends extending is how how you would look at it, because we're not really going to see any kind of significant change anytime soon. When it comes to the the impact of rates on farmland purchases in the U.S., I, I believe that is the case. We we haven't seen a really material deviation in uh, bidding practice or prices over the last year. We 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 see within our acres data, we see a a wider dispersion. Right, so rather than having a, a tight grouping of pricing around around what your mean may be, uh, seeing a wider amount. So, what that means is we see some stuff still going for outrageously high prices, the stuff that catches the headlines, and we're beginning to see some stuff trade at almost irrationally low prices relative to the market. Right, so you, you do see some things, uh, whether it's just not a well-run process or what that may be, see things now. You know, oh, that's a 10, 15 percent discount to quote-unquote market, and I. We didn't see a whole lot of that two years ago. For the last 20 plus years, as I lived in the state of Iowa, I've covered politics a lot, both state and national politics. We have the Iowa caucuses here. And something that you wrote a couple of months ago caught my eye as we kind of step back broadly and some days, frankly, wonder what the heck's going on in politics and, you know, this kind of tribalistic thing we have going on where it seems a lot of attention is more stopping the other party from accomplishing this rather than maybe some kind of bipartisan or nonpartisan efforts to kind of solve some of these bigger problems. And one of the articles you wrote was farmland doesn't care about politics. What, why is that in your mind? I'm really sorry, I broke up right when you said the name of the article. Sure, farmland doesn't care about politics. Oh, <laughs> well, like, just like our appetites don't care about your politics, right? <laughs> like, like at, at the end of the day, uh, this is like a quintessentially American uh, asset and American pastime. And and what I was referring to that in particular, what I was referring to in that particular article were the potential existential threats of uh, politics getting in the way of the business of farming. And I, I think we are lucky on a relative basis in farming uh, that it is a respected profession. It is often, in most surveys, agriculture and farming is the number one most respected profession in the United States. Now, politician tends to be at the very bottom of that list, <laughs> right? like, um, but but very, very top of the list is, is what we do. And there's broad bipartisan support for us all being able to eat uh, as, a, as a general statement. So what a, that was the, the broader intent of that was bringing forward some surveys and to remind people that uh, the, the pursuit of farming and, and the pursuit of business should uh, be a, a nonpartisan issue. Right? We, we all should be able to uh, pr pursue our own businesses and, and grow our businesses as we see fit. Uh, you, you grew up on a farm, so this has really been part of your life 
your entire life. As you look at how investors are seeing the value of investing in farmland, how has that changed the day-to-day of somebody like you where you're not always just talking about the couple looking to buy the farm next door because that family has retired and you know or wants to move to sunshine somewhere and uh, you know try to en- enjoy the the golden years of life as investors are looking at this maybe maybe talk a little bit more about when it's investor driven and not a current farmland owner or operator looking to expand the difference so the the investors like what are what are they seeing they're often seeing consistency of appreciation uh, and consistency of of yield from that asset class. And look, like this isn't a from the investor standpoint. Uh, I'm going to ignore us and, and the world of, of farming in general. But uh, from the investor standpoint, it is a very w- unsexy asset class, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, like, I can invest in farmland, and I'm not going to get rich, but I'm probably not going to like lose my shirt and take a zero next year either. And and that consistency of that compounding. Um, you know, the, the eighth wonder of the world, I think, was, was Einstein's quote about compounding of capital. Uh, that, that is a really uh, attractive component of farmland to a, a lot of investors. So we are seeing this, this growth in, in investing and in professional investing within farmland. Uh, but it's important to note, like, that has been happening for centuries, right? Like, it was just called granddad uh, back then, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, the idea of, of acquiring parcels and then ultimately uh, maybe not farming them. I think something like 40%, 40% of U.S. farmland, so we're talking about over a trillion dollars of this stuff, is, is absentee owned and farmed. Uh, so my my wife is a similar example where uh, she, uh, her mother inherited some land from her mother. And it's actually there near Council Bluffs in your part of the world. And they, they rent it out to a really, really great local farmer who uses that to grow his own business. And he, not, he may not be able to afford buying new land, but uh, having more land to farm is a good thing. So we see an opportunity within our business to help connect those markets, make them more efficient, uh, to bring a, uh, a better shake to the farmer that wants to grow their operation. And, and likewise, a, a better and more, uh, potentially more diversified approach for the investor. The One of my guilty pleasures, and I've watched probably every episode of this show is Law & Order SVU. And in a recent episode, they talked about AI, artificial intelligence. And so it's this company where essentially what they created replaced all these engineers. And of course there was a murder in the show because that's what they do in this show. And you know, there's all kinds of, all kinds of bad stuff happen. Um, uh, this was Law and Order, not Law and Order SVU actually. Uh, I watched both shows as guilty pleasures. Um, and I know you really pay attention to AI and where it could potentially take this industry. What has your attention with this? And maybe let's start with the benefits. Where are you already seeing benefits? Uh, probably point to a couple of corners of our industry. One is um, interpretation of imagery uh, that, that, is, that is gaining a lot of traction. And uh, for, for us in the world of farming has some, some pretty interesting implications. The other is generative AI. That's the thing that's been catching all the, the recent news, right? And that's things like um, GPT-4, Perplexity, Anthropics, Claude, Google's Bard, whatever those may be. Those are like great, okay trained research assistants. And, and that can be really helpful as well uh, to find information without having to go read 27 articles. So 
I think there are some interesting use cases today, but as a lot of those models will teach you as well, the uh, the underlying data is actually really all that matters, right? Like if you don't have a good foundation of information to build upon, then it's not going to give you a whole lot of unique or or even uh, remotely a, a, a approachable insights. So I'll, I'll use the case of farmland values as, as one. I do not believe at any time in the uh, immediate or even medium term future, computers are going to tell us what a piece of farmland is worth. Hmm. There are too many idiosyncrasies, too much hyper-localized knowledge uh, for that to work. So I, I hear people say like, oh, you, you know, this acres.com product is super cool. When are you going to have, you know, do AVMs and automated valuation models and uh, let the AI tell me what my farm is worth. And I, I call me like, you know, ridiculously uh, antiquated or Luddite technologist, right? But I, I don't, uh, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon, just given uh, how much a human needs to be involved in that process. And so I, I call me crazy. Uh, I don't think so. Brokers, managers, appraisers, these on-farm professionals uh, will be needed in our industry uh, for as long as I can see. Uh, you mentioned imagery. Can you expand on that a little bit? Where is AI working with that? Yeah, so let's let's take the example of a cancer screening, uh, right? So you can you can rapid feed uh, some of these models, X-rays as an example, or, or MRIs, and say, hey, look through this group of imagery and and find uh, cancer. Basically, here, here's what it should look like. Now go go look through this data set of a million images and help me find more. And generally speaking, it, it can it can be as accurate or even more accurate than the human interpreters. Like you still need a human on the backside of that. But what you've just done is cut out a lot of the not fun, not glamorous work. And so this this can be applied to any field of imagery as we think about understanding uh, you know, at, at scale, of course, uh, what's happening on a farm or understanding at a, at a micro level, right? Like take a picture of in the field and what's happening uh, it, it can be pretty useful. It can also just be noise. It usually is noise, uh, right? So, but, I, but like, if, if you think about the, uh, the the leaps that this technology has made in the last five years, and you extrapolate out, like this is something that will be very, very meaningful, you know, in the coming years in farming. This isn't like, oh, our grandkids are going to have it different. Like, we will have it different. Your your business is based on information. When you were talking about water, for example. You're doing deep dive specifics on different regions of our country. So you have to know that. I appreciate that you've created these, these platforms, but where do you go for information? Like, how are you staying current on this? How are you getting this deeper knowledge in these localized areas? So what I, I am not, right? I, I work with really, really bright people who, who are. So that helps quite a bit. Uh, we work with third parties in the field all the time. The the, um, the cadre of brokers and appraisers and managers and uh, lenders and investors and farmers and you know everyone out there. Uh, we we really uh, try to build relationships. Uh, certainly, aggregating information is then you know far more formulaic, and that can be from uh, purchased data sets. It can be from government data sets, from satellite imagery. Uh, it can be for us manually inputting it. I mean, we have a a team of folks here who are going and manually inputting comparable sales every day uh, to try to get our information just a little bit better for the industry. Uh, try to find rent information, things like that. Anything that can improve transparency, uh, we we are a believer in. 
and uh, bringing transparency to this asset class. So we, our, our data science team is working day in and day out to continuously source more unique uh, information for, for that purpose. Uh, sometimes ownership information can be challenging depending on how the structure is set up. How do you get around that? There's a lot of approaches. Um, you know, the reality is we've got to get information from something like 3,000 different courthouses and assessors around the U.S. Sometimes those files are amazing. Uh, <laughs> often they are not, right? So, you know, we we get CD-ROMs. This is, this is the year 2024 I'm speaking to. With CD-ROMs in the mail uh, is a way to transfer data uh, from, from some of these courthouses. So uh, quite, quite antiquated processes. Quite often the data can be incorrect. So we, we do quite a bit of cleaning. We still don't get it perfect, uh, but we want to get as best as it possibly can be for, for the users. And it, it, is this... Uh... Is this process getting better? I mean, you've done this long enough now. Are you seeing access to information, ability to get it? Is that, are we improving? Is this tech world making this easier to get? I mean, it's a little disconcerting to hear you say that you're getting CD-ROMs in the mail. I, I wasn't sure they even still had those. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, some of the younger folks on staff, we had to order a, a CD reader to, to get the information off it. <laughs> They're holding up this shiny disc. Like, what, what is happening here? Uh, yeah. uh, so, uh, you know, are we getting better as an industry, like marginally, right? And I, I think that's where we see an opportunity as a business is if we can really speed that up and equip the industry with, with more data, faster, more relevant uh, data, more recent data, uh, that is that is a uh, real importance. And what we've realized is, that's not always APIs and you know beautiful transfer of information. Sometimes it is manually keying things in. Uh, not not sometimes. Every day it is manually keying things in to go try to find good information. And if that's what we've got to do to uh, to move our business forward, we're, we're willing to do it. Hearing you talk, you obviously and you already mentioned your background. You grew up on the farm, so you at your core have a passion for all of this. And big picture, you know that you want to present this service, like you used your dad as an example, a specific example about how your services can help a guy like that. How do you, as you've expanded this business, how do you hire staff that share the same kind of passion and commitment to this uh, sharing of information? I mean, being, running a business is hard, right? <laughs> it, it is. And uh, we, we have a we have a very intense hiring process. We're, we're a small company, right? There's like 60 something people that work here. So uh, not, not a massive company, but uh, we are very, very careful in hiring. And we are, we are absolutely looking for brilliant people that have incredible grit and a strong preference for them to be a real redneck. And, and I, I see that in endearing way. I live in, in a loving time. way. Yeah. You know, like our, our uh, uh, head of data science, who's got a, a PhD in the world of agricultural economics. Uh, you know, is, is coming in late because he's been out bow hunting. Uh, and so that that is a really great type of uh, person to work with to, to solve the particular challenges we're up against. I'm pretty sure uh, you've got a bush light on the on a shelf above your head, which... <laughs> All right, well, backstory, I, I probably should move that for interviews. Uh, so <laughs> one of the folks I, I work with became obsessed with this uh, corn bush light can, which you guys have in the Midwest. We do not have here in the South. And so he hunted, trying to find one of these, um, uh, I guess they call it a bushel, right? It's got, got um, a 
a whole like a like what much larger 30 pack what are 56 cans in there and um he chased one of these downs and finally found it and came in the office so proud that he had found this yeah it's michael it's still bush light uh, but somehow they're going to play behind me so uh, the packaging <laughs> makes it all different the rest of them went, went really quickly but <laughs> packaging makes all the difference you got it uh let's end with this as you as you look forward what do you see as the maybe one of the primary challenges in the industry information is like the one that i'm working on right so i think that mm -hmm. that means of of uh great import um i, I think Look, financial stability of farmers is, is still incredibly important. I think a lot of folks romanticize farmers as, uh, you know, being out on the farm, but they, they also have to be very astute business people to to be effective. And so um, I think continuing to support farmers and, and provide stability within their business is important for us to do as a, as a country. Um, beyond that, like, look, there's there's the seasonal problems we have every year of, of growing things that are that can be really problematic. Um, there are uh, still very real problems in uh, in the younger farmers being able to get a good start and being able to build a business. And uh, that look that is true in any commodity production type of industry. It's it's hard to crack into. Uh, but anything we can do to bring those folks along is important because as as you well know, uh, we don't have enough farmers and that that number is shrinking. So I think that is something we it's a pretty acute pain that will become very, very real in the next decade or so. Carter, we appreciate the time. Thanks for what you're doing and thanks for the conversation. Thanks, Dave. All right, let me stop this sucker.